Uh, last October, Tom, as he's been leading us through the Sermon on the Mount, preached on Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12, which says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll see that same reality in our text for today. John fifteen eighteen through sixteen four, which Luke alluded to and, and read a couple verses from in the call to worship. And so I'm humbled for another reason today, because I'm struck by how little my life reflects the reality of the text from Matthew 5 and the text in John 15. I wonder if, if I suffer the way that these texts call us to. But it's a reality that saints throughout the history of the church have, have lived through. Because it's a reality that, that marks Jesus' church out as His. I think of saints like Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was, as a recent biography says, he was a German prophet, martyr, pastor, and spy in the early to mid-19th or 20th century during World War II. A German theologian who... Uh, because of his convictions, became involved in the covert German resistance to take Hitler out of power. He believed, like many others, that Hitler was just completely evil and that he needed to be removed and that if he was removed, the Allies might look more favorably on Germany for some sort of post-war uh, treaty. But of, of course, we know that the plot failed many times and Bonhoeffer was arrested and imprisoned. He was hung on April 9th, 1945, just two weeks before the war ended. But I was struck as I read his biography, this recent biography, about some words he wrote to his best friend, Eberhard Bethke, about a year before he was executed. So early on in his prison term, he said this, When people suggest in their letters that I'm suffering here, I reject the thought. It seems to me a profanation. I doubt very much whether I'm suffering any more than you or most people are suffering today. No, suffering must be something quite different and have a quite different dimension from what I have so far experienced. Bonhoeffer, he did experience worse before he was eventually hung, executed. But I was struck by how he was in prison, in a terrible prison, not a nice prison. And he reckons his own experience is not suffering, no, no worse than any of his friends outside of prison would have experienced. And I wondered why that was. Why is that? How could he think this way? There's probably many reasons, but I think at least one reason is that he took the words of Scripture, the words of Jesus, seriously. And it's words like the words we find in John 15, if you'll turn there now. John 15, 18 to 16, 4. And we'll read just the first half of 16.4. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So this passage has three main sections I want us to look at in turn. First, verses 18 to 25 tell us that the people of Jesus, disciples, true, genuine Christians, know that the world will hate them. We know that. Second, verses 26 to 27 tell us that the people of Jesus bear witness to that exact same world. Finally, verses 1 to 4 in chapter 16 tell the people of Jesus that Jesus gives us these words so that we will persevere so that we will endure as his disciples. It's important any time we read a passage of Scripture to put it in its context, to know what's come before and what's coming after. And this passage is in Jesus' farewell discourse to his disciples. He's, as he's told them now, leaving them. He's about to depart from the world. And then before that, in the first 12 chapters of the Gospel, Jesus has carried out his public ministry with his disciples done several signs, seven signs, to reveal his glory, the glory, uh, John writes, that was before the world. And in John chapter 13, he turns to his own disciples, and chapters 13 through 17 are just Jesus speaking with his 12 disciples. As we know, in, during the Last Supper, Jesus predicts that one of them will betray, and in fact, Jesus gets up and leaves the room to begin his betrayal. So when we come to this passage, Jesus is speaking to his 11 disciples, just 11 remaining, and he's preparing them to do the ministry that he's done after he leaves them, after he's crucified, resurrected, and then ascended back to the Father. Jesus wants his disciples to live out on earth the ministry that he has done on earth. That's the context in which Jesus says the words, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me. And it's striking because the verse right before this is that these things I command you so that you will love one another. One of my favorite passages, some of, perhaps some of us, our favorite passage, the, the vine and the branches, beautiful imagery about abiding in the Father's love and the love of Christ. But then he turns, the stark turns that the world will hate you, he says. Why does he do this? I think there's a few reasons that we'll get to, but first, as I said, it's important to know that verses 18 to 25, Jesus tells us that his people know that the world will hate them. 
There's two commands here, two commands. Verse 18, no. It's a command, not just a suggestion. And in verse 20, remember, another command. So what does Jesus say mean when he says, if the world hates you? It might seem like Jesus is laying out a, there's a 50-50 chance that the world will not like you, or some other percentage. That's not what's happening. The, the construction of the sentence is such that Jesus assumes this as the truth for the sake of his argument. So we could say, when the world hates you, because Jesus assumes this as a reality. So the question, next question then is, who is the world? What does the world mean? Because we can think of the world in different ways, like the created world. But that's not what Jesus has in mind here. The created world is good. God created in seven days and called his creation good each day. The, the sense here of the world is the, the rebellious, sinful humanity who rejects God and his ways. John 3.19, Jesus speaking, talks about how men loved the darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And the men, the people there, are set parallel to the world. So we're talking about the sinful, rebellious world that, that hates God, that rejects him. And we know that's true because Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. And if we read the first half of John's gospel, if you know John's gospel, you know that Jesus' ministry, far from a rock star ministry, is a ministry of rejection. For instance, in John 6, he gives his bread of life teaching. He says, I am the bread of life. And then he says, whoever desires to live must eat my flesh and drink my blood, must live on me. But then many who have been following him already, they, they say this is a hard saying. And they decide to leave. They turn away and they, they fall away. And they leave Jesus. They reject him. In John 8, Jesus is speaking to some opponents, some Pharisees, and talking about whose father is who. They claim to have God as their father, but Jesus says, your father is the devil. Jesus didn't mince words. And then when he says, before Abraham was, I am, they pick up stones to stone him. Then go forward to John 11, after he raises Lazarus from the tomb, and Lazarus is walking around alive, speaking now, then... The Jerusalem leadership, the council decides now is the time to begin the plot to put Jesus to death. So Jesus' ministry was a ministry in which he faced rejection and the hatred of the world. And, and we, we can stomach that until he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. So our lives will follow the life of Jesus here he's telling us. And we know that's true because of verses 19 to 21. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. For this reason the world hates you. In John 15:16, Jesus tells his disciples, "You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide." The disciples did not volunteer for their discipleship. Jesus called them and selected them for this mission. We may have grown up in Christian homes, and, and that's a blessing I did. 
But if we're here and we have life in Christ, it's because He has called us to be His children and selected us out of the world. Jesus later, when He goes on trial, the, the mock, you know, basically kangaroo court trial, before Pilate, He says to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. So if we are Christians here today, if you're a Christian, it's because Jesus has called you, the Father has called you through His Son, to be a part of His kingdom. Belong to a different realm altogether. So it's for this reason, He says, that the world will hate you. Then in verse 20, He says, Remember the word that I said to you. It's a word that we see in chapter 13 as He's washing the disciples' feet. It says that they must receive this because a servant is not greater than his master or the Lord. And then he says, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So here Jesus specifies what he means by the hatred of the world. It's not mere inconveniences. Jesus doesn't have in mind um, just being disliked, but actual active persecution, harassment, torment, even up to death, as he'll say in chapter 16. And if they kept my word, he says, they will also keep yours. So in these disciples' coming mission, there will be those who will hear their words. But all this comes together then in verse 29. He says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. And we know that the book of Acts demonstrates that this happened, that Jesus kept his word. His word was good. In Acts 5, the apostles are arrested by the council for preaching in Jesus' name. And then after they're released, they rejoice. It says in verse 41, they rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. We know in Acts 9, Saul, who is Paul, is blinded by Jesus. He says, Saul, why are you persecuting me about the Christians? And he's And then Jesus speaks to Ananias and says to go find Paul because he's my chosen instrument to carry my name to the Gentiles. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So what does it mean to be attached to the name of Jesus? Because that's what he's saying his disciples will be. It's not just that the name name Jesus is a nice name or the disciples will like the name Yesu in Greek. No, it's because the name in the Bible connotes the character of a person. His characteristics, his qualities. So when God, Yahweh, reveals his name to Moses in Exodus 34, he says, my name is, and he describes himself as merciful and compassionate, gracious, having steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty, a just God. That's what the idea of the name means. So when Jesus' name is preached, when his name is fixed on a person, his name brings up his qualities, his characteristics as the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who did all these works in the Gospels. So Jesus tells his people that they will be attached to his name. So this is a a key point that we have to understand for our own lives. That to, to be a Christian, 
means that we know that what happens to Jesus happens to his people. Now, don't hear me wrong, that does not mean we take on the cross and suffer for the sins of others vicariously. It's not a complete analogy. But Jesus' way to the cross, his taking on the cross, is, is our way of life. What happens to Jesus happens to his people because we have his name on us, because he called us. There's an Old Testament scholar who's passed away. He wrote this sometime in the 50s, a book on the kingdom of God, John Bright. He says this about the kingdom and suffering and election. It says, The good times that we desire are times of freedom from disturbing bother in which a man can read his paper without worrying, can get on with his business, can have gas for his car, and the pleasures and luxuries which we all enjoy. Those, we would say, are the good times. But perhaps from the divine point of view, they are not. For the purpose of God for us is not the comfort of our bodies, or the preservation of our interests, but the discipline of our spirits, that we, may be tru- that we may become truly his people. Let it never be forgotten. It is precisely in suffering that the people of God are selected. In suffering, they are known. So for us to suffer to be hated, to be persecuted for Jesus' name, is to, be, is to suffer, is to be persecuted in Jesus' name and through Jesus' name because of the Spirit, as we'll see. It's because we're His people. So the people of Jesus know that there will be suffering, that there will be hatred, that there will be rejection, there will be even possibly persecution to death because we are His people. The question, though, is what does this look like for us? in our lives. We live in a country, in a context where we do not come to church with fear of reprisal. We can, I safely drove here this morning and we'll safely drive home this afternoon. And we can give God thanks for that. I think persecution in our context takes on something of a much more subtle character. Last weekend, Breck and I visited uh, Mark and Kimberly Catlin, um, former members here, Christ Covenant. And they're serving uh, in a college ministry in a prestigious Northeastern University, once Christian, but now very secular, and I'll leave it unnamed. But there is on campus a nice building that another campus organization owned, but they had lost membership and their funds had fizzled out, and so the building was, they needed to get rid of the building. And the ministry that Mark serves with offered this other organization a huge sum of money to buy that building so that the ministry, Christian Union, would have a place on this campus to minister to the students. But rather than take that money from a Christian organization, this other organization decided to give it to the university for free. This is the kind of rejection and persecution and hatred that I think we can expect in our American, our Western context. But we should also remember that we have brothers and sisters who suffer under very active persecution. In two weeks, we'll have a brother come preach who has been in prison for Jesus' name. So we should pray for them, remember them, and know that we're a part of this body. So we'll turn now to verses 22 to 25 which tell us a very important point we need to remember as we, as we look, as we go forward as witnesses, 
that the people of Jesus know that the hatred of the world is actually sin. It's the hatred of God. In John 9, Jesus healed the blind man. And the blind man was then questioned by the leadership, Pharisees, the synagogue. They questioned his parents. And his parents feared being thrown out of the synagogue. And Jesus finds the blind man after all this, and he says this to him, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. The Pharisees heard Jesus and said, and said to him, Are we blind? Jesus, Jesus responds to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. The Pharisees had not received Jesus as the Messiah. They did not worship him. They did not believe he revealed the Father to them. So they asked this question selfishly. In verses 22 and 23, and especially 24, Jesus says, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Jesus coming into the world raises the level of responsibility for those who have seen and heard him. The Pharisees thought they could just debate him, but they missed the point. Jesus says now that he has come and done these works among men, that they, if they have seen him, they've seen the Father. They have seen God in the flesh. It's important to know that the gospel brings a judgment. The gospel is good news. It's good news for those who receive and follow and worship Jesus as the Christ. But it's very bad news for those who reject him. The gospel brings a judgment, and we need to know that we're a people who carry a message of judgment. It does not mean we walk around shouting at our neighbors, sinner, sinner. But it means that the message that we hold dear is a message that divides, the truth divides. Jesus says that all this, however, is a fulfillment of Scripture. It says in verse 25, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. So Jesus' life, as the Gospels make quite clear, is a fulfillment of God's plan from the beginning, from Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament, through his history with Israel, to bring about the Messiah. And Jesus says here that his hatred, his rejection, was even a fulfillment of Scripture. Jesus here cites I think Psalm 69, verse 4. It's a psalm similar to Psalms 54 or 55 of a righteous sufferer. It's a psalm by David who, though David is not perfect, and if you read the psalm you'll see that, he is suffering unjustly. He's been persecuted unjustly. He's been kicked down and kicked when he was down. The psalm says this, verses 3 and 4, I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. So David, in the midst of his suffering, cries out to God for deliverance from, from his rejection, from his pain. Because he... He knows that he has, before men, he has integrity. He's not perfect, but he has integrity. And so his suffering is unjust. Jesus, as the greater David, takes on David's words 
and shows that they apply to his life. David's words were written for David's life, but also for Jesus' life. As we talked about, Jesus' whole earthly ministry, some followed, but many rejected, hated him without cause. As he's just said, this is, in fact, sin. So I want from these verses to, to draw our hearts to tru- two truths. First is that when we bear witness, as we'll look at shortly, we need to know that when we bear witness for the gospel, for Christ, who we love and worship, that if we're rejected, it's not because we're being disliked. The rejection of the message of the gospel is, is sin. It's hatred of God. It's hatred of Christ. So we take it personally because we love Jesus and because we may know this and love this person we bring the message to. So on one hand it is personal, but on the other hand it's not personal. The deeper problem is a problem of sin, rejection of God. So we should pray and cry out for this person, these people we're, we're bearing witness to, that they would be saved, their eyes would be opened. The second truth comes from verse 25. Jesus, who is the Son of God, perfect without sin, knows that the Scriptures apply to Him. But He was also steeped in the Old Testament. He understands His life by way of David's life, by way of the Scriptures from Psalm 69. But what's amazing is that He applies those words from David's life, from His life, to His disciples' life. He says David was hated. I was hated without cause. You will be hated without cause. So the Scriptures provide Jesus a paradigm to understand His own life. And we should do the same. We should steep ourselves in Jesus' words, in the words of the Old Testament, that apply to us, that teach us how to live. The Psalms, like Psalm 69, they give us, they give us content for living in the world. They give us a vocabulary for for praise, for rejoicing, for suffering, unjust suffering. So verses 18 to 25 are all about how we as Jesus' disciples know that we will experience hatred in the world, the rebellious world. But amazingly, Jesus then turns in verses 26 to 27 and he says, but you guys get to be witnesses to this world. There's two witnesses here Jesus calls up in verses 26 and 27. So what's happening in the Gospel of John is is something like a law court scene. Jesus is about to go on trial, as we said, the kangaroo court trial. It's not a legal trial. But he's about to go on trial before the world. And he'll stand trial and he'll be convicted. But Jesus calls out, first the Holy Spirit, and then his disciples as two witnesses, in keeping with the the biblical precedent, to need two or more witnesses, to bear witness to the truth that he is actually the Son of God. He is who he claimed to be. And his resurrection will verify that. And then when he leaves, his disciples will go out and bear witness to this truth. So we have two witnesses, at least two, who will bear witness to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, And we have a promise and a command. First, verse 26 gives the promise of the Holy Spirit, the Helper, he says, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth. Your Bibles may call him the Advocate, the Counselor, the Comforter. These are all helpful terms, but I think it's probably best just to 
leave it untranslated as the paraclete, and describe what he does from the gospel. In John 14, 16 to 18, Jesus says, first instance of the paraclete, talks about how he'll send the spirit of truth, the helper, the paraclete, who will dwell with them and be with them, and be in them, he says. And then in 14.26, he says that this same paraclete, he will bring to remembrance all of Jesus' words after he leaves them. And here in 15.26, he says that the paraclete will bear witness about Jesus. And then after this passage in 16.8-11, he says that the, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will, will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. J.I. Packer calls the ministry of the Holy Spirit a floodlight ministry where he shines the beam of the floodlight onto Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit will do when he comes, when he is sent from the Father through the Son to the world. So this is the promise that the Holy Spirit will come and bear witness about Jesus. But then there's also a command. He says to the disciples, you will bear witness. It's Maybe in the future tense in your Bibles, but it's a command. You bear witness to me because you've been with me from the beginning. So we talked about what it means to be a witness, to verify to the truth of Jesus' life. The question then comes, he said the world will hate you. Is Jesus not sending his disciples into a trap? What kind of God is this who sends his people into a world that hates them, that will persecute them? Well, it's the kind of God who's always had this plan because he desires to speak and show himself through his people. In Isaiah 43, Isaiah the prophet of the 8th century who was called from, by God to speak to Israel in the light of Israel's idolatry. And Isaiah brings a very unpopular message that if Israel does not repent, they're going to go into exile. They're going to be judged. But he also preaches a message of restoration after exile. And in the midst of this context, in Isaiah 43, the Lord says this through Isaiah, 43, 10 to 12. To his people, the Lord says, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. It's always been, it has always been God's plan for him to show himself through his people. In fact, just after this passage in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, I'm going away, and guess what? It's to your advantage that I go away. How amazing would it have been if the resurrected Christ had still been walking around, walking around, able to show the nail scars in his hands? Would not people just believe and fall on their knees? Maybe, but also probably not. His ministry was a ministry of rejection. Because the plan was always for Jesus to come to reveal himself, to raise up, to call out these twelve, to empower them after his death, resurrection, and the ascension to empower them with the Holy Spirit so that they would be his witnesses on earth. That's what the church is for. We represent God to the world. In our lives, in our words, we represent 
God. We represent the name of Christ to the world. And there's manifold ways we can do this. For some, it may mean moving to China. For others, it means living with integrity, not cooking the books at your workplace. Refusing to ignore the policy that most everyone else in the office ignores because they've always ignored the policy. But because you're one of Jesus' children, you follow and you live and you even incur maybe the wrath of some. It's what it looks like to be witnesses to the name of Christ in the world. We only need to read the book of Acts to know that this happened. That Jesus' words were fulfilled. In Acts chapter 5, I've already referenced it. Peter speaks after the apostles have been, well, before they're beaten. After they've been in prison, he tells this to the leadership. We must obey God rather than men. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Fulfillment of this passage right here. It happens. Jesus keeps his word. Jesus wants to keep his word through us. The Holy Spirit empowers us, enables us. We don't do this alone. God is not away from us. It may feel at times as though Jesus is very far from us. If it's because of our sin, we must repent, call out for God's grace, seek his forgiveness. But if it's because we're living obediently, as David prayed, we're talking about suffering as obedient disciples here, not suffering because of our sin. If we're living obediently, we need to remember this promise that God is with us to the end of the age, he tells his disciples. Because he poured out the Spirit to dwell in us, to live through us. So verses 18 to 25, we know that the world will hate those who live under Jesus' name. Verses 26 to 27 give the promise of the Spirit and the command to bear witness. In verses uh, 1 to 4 of chapter 16, Jesus tells us that all this is so that we would persevere as Luke led in the call to worship. He said that how kind Jesus is to warn his disciples, to remind his disciples of the way of life that they're about to face. God is very honest with us. The Bible is a wholly realistic book. Because we're human and born sinful, we fall captive to wishful thinking. And we hope, we think, our lives might look this way, some way. But Jesus' words here, he tells his disciples what their lives are about to look like. God lays it out for us. He's very honest to us. And we need to take on his words to know them. He tells his disciples all these things to keep them from falling away, verse 1. This is the same word that if you go back and read chapter 6, verse that I referenced earlier, when many disciples leave. In verse 61, chapter 6, Jesus uses this same word. The root is kind of where we get the word to scandalize. Jesus has said these things that his disciples will not fall away due to sin. We need the hard words of God because there are hard times in our lives and he wants us to persevere through those hard times. Through suffering, in our suffering, 
that actually bears a great witness to the world that hates us. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus clarifies what this suffering is going to look like for the disciples. He says, they'll put you out of the synagogues, like in John 9. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. They will do this because they have not known the Father. Uh, for an analogy or an illustration of what this looked like, just think of Paul. Think of what Saul, Paul, was like before Jesus saved him. He stood by and held the cloaks of those who stoned Stephen and approved of his, cruci- of his execution. And in Philippians 3, Paul says that his persecution of the church was his religious zeal. There's a rabbinic text that's later than the New Testament but speaks to this attitude. It says that if a man sheds blood of the wicked, it is though he had offered an offering. So there's some for those that religious zeal, that worship looks like to take the lives of others. Jesus is telling his disciples that the, the way of life they have known is over. It's changing. Their place of worship will become a place of rejection. Their way of life is going to be overhauled. But it will be worth it. It will be worth it. The earliest Christians, even after the disciples, endured this. There's a letter from Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Trajan, who ruled in AD 98 to 117. So as the church goes on, the, the persecution picks up. Pliny says this, The method I observe toward those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed, I repeated the question twice again adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be executed. Others at first confessed themselves Christians and then denied it. True, they had been of that persuasion, but they had quit it many years ago. They all worshipped your statue and the image of the gods and cursed Christ. We share this temptation even in our own very safe North American context. There are all sorts of idols in our lives that call out for our attention, that tempt us to bow down to them instead of Jesus, that woo us to follow them rather than Jesus, that promise us life, success, material possessions, as Tom preached last week. This letter from Pliny reminds us that the dangers are real but also reminds us that Jesus spoke such words to us so that we could, we would, and we will persevere by the power of the Spirit. As he says in verse 4, finally, when their hour comes, when these things happen, I've said these things so that you may remember I told them to you. One of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to bring to remembrance the words that we need, the vocabulary we need, the thoughts that we need, the bread, the food, the energy we need to live as Christians in whatever circumstances God has us in. So this passage teaches us to know that the world will hate us. It will hate those who follow Christ, who share His name. But it teaches us that we also bear witness to that same world. We do not turn and run away from the world. We don't retreat from the world. 
The last thing, friends, we should do today is go home and bunker down and not talk to our neighbors or our co-workers because we're promised that the world will hate us. See, God's love is an overcoming love. He sent his son into the world because he loved even the world that rejects him. He loved the world. So that those who believe in him would have life, eternal life, John 3.16 says. And thirdly, we need to remember these words, Jesus' words, in order to persevere in the midst of this world. So what then do we do today? Well, if you're not a Christian here today, this should hit you very directly to know that you are actually part of the world that hates God. It is in rejection of Him. You may consider yourself religious, but to be a disciple is to have life in Jesus' name and to take on His name. Not just think that Jesus is a good example, but to share His name. To believe that His death and His resurrection, His ascension, was on your behalf for your sins. So I call you to, to repentance today. But know the words of John 3.16 and 17, and we should all hear these. As I said, God's love is an overcoming love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved, delivered through him. It's also a word for us those of us who are Christians, disciples of Jesus, followers of Him. Our, I think our willingness to prepare ourselves with these words shows our level of love for Jesus. Admittedly, we, we will not leave today and, and face physical persecution. But this is a time, this is a season for us to prepare ourselves because what we go in we go into suffering with what we have. And if we have very little, if we have nothing, we will suffer poorly. But if we know Jesus is with us, we will suffer well. So I ask us some questions today. Do we love so honor, serve and desire? Do we love Jesus more than the world? Or do aspects of the world hold our affections more than Jesus? 1 John 2 uh, says that the world is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride in possessions. Consider your hearts today. What desires of the eyes, the flesh, the pride in possessions tempt you, draw you away from Jesus? Because what overcomes is, is our love for Jesus. Our faith in Him overcomes the world, 1 John 5 says. So are we living for Jesus' name is a question we must ask ourselves. And a way to diagnose that is just to read passages like this, to read the book of Revelation, to read Psalm 69, to listen to Tom's sermon from October on Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Is this a reality in our hearts? We should ask ourselves. Secondly, are we bearing witness to the world? So the title of the sermon is Suffering for Jesus' Name. It, you could just trade out bearing witness for Jesus' name. They're, they're one and the same. So we can't remove ourselves from the world. Parents especially, you desire to love and protect your children. How 
does this passage instruct you to, to train your children in the ways of Christ, to know how to live wisely in the world, and to bear witness to the world? Thirdly, are we, are we doing this together? Are we doing this together? This really, I think, hits home for us because I've mentioned I'm convicted by how my, often my life does not look like this. And in the physical persecution realm, it probably won't, as far as I know. But it's also because I consider how often I want my own conveniences, my own time above God's glory and your good. So we should ask ourselves, are we living our lives together in such a way so that when persecution and suffering comes, we're already loving one another? Jesus says this right after he commands them to love one another. If you're, not, if you're on the boundaries of this congregation, and the only fellowship you have is on Sunday mornings, I submit to you it's not enough. We have care groups and Wednesday night and all these things that are means of grace for us to love one another well, so that we'll love Jesus when it comes time to honor his name in the face of persecution. Finally, before we pray, we should know that Jesus' love overcomes the world because he went to the cross. He took on the rejection, the hatred of the world in himself and laid it on the cross. All of the sins that the world may lash against us were laid on Jesus on the cross. So we can have great confidence that one day God will totally overcome that and bring in the new reality of his new creation. Jesus says in John 16, 33, I have overcome the world. That's, that's the confidence we can have as we go forward today.